Hello there, you beautiful people. I've got a question for you. Do you drink coffee or tea? Of course you do, you beautiful bastard. And that is precisely why I want to tell you about my sponsor, Twin Engine Coffee. Twin Engine Coffee grows and roasts specialty-grade coffees right on the farms in Central America. And guess what? If you happen to be a snob like me and are much too pretentious to drink coffee, you can enjoy some Keturah tea, my personal favorite, which is made from the dried fruit of the coffee plant. You take you some ginger root, a couple lemon slices, some honey, and a dash of cayenne powder, and you'll have an even sexier concoction than all the hipsters tapping away at their laptops at that high-end cafe around the corner. So again, if you enjoy great coffee or tea, support small business and this podcast by ordering from twinenginecoffee.com slash Clifton Duncan. Again, that is twinenginecoffee.com slash Clifton Duncan. There's a link in the show notes below. And now, enjoy the show. I don't think any character, if one's taking it seriously as a writer, you can't do a one or two dimensional character because what's the point? You have, it's a seduction and I want to grab the heart of every reader I can conceivably get my hands on, emotional hands on. And I want to give them something worth falling for and embracing and coming back to see what happens next. Because if I don't, then what's the point? Camera's at an angle where you get to see mostly the unshaven bottom of my chin. It's all good, man. I mean, look, I I got the scraggly beard going on myself, so I've I've, we we both uh, clearly don't give a uh, this morning, and that's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Sadly, it's it's just spent all day like unpacking shipping boxes. We just got furniture returned from for from storage. And so today I'm making up for it because I'm on a panic deadline with an artist waiting for for pages. And well, see, the the joke for me is that I took my cue, have always taken my cue from Stan, Stan working with Jack. It's like, why do I bother writing a script? I'll just give, you know, point Jack in the right direction. and Jack will draw, which Mm. Jack did. For those who don't remember, this is Kirby and Lee, Lee and Kirby. And uh, Stan would then script it off of the art, which for me, considering everybody I've worked with over the years, seemed perfectly sensible. I mean, why tell Dave Cockrum or John Byrne or, or Paul Smith or Walter Simonson how to draw, you know, this is how many, you know, to give him a full script, to give them a full script, mm. why not simply point them in the right direction and turn them loose and and, you know, the joke is that the first issue of Wolverine was me writing a standard 
plot breakdown, and that was 20 pages for a 22-page story. And the last plot for issue four was Frank and me talking for 20 minutes and, and me transcribing a half page of type of typing notes. Hmm. And that was it, because we all knew, we both knew what the characters, we both knew the setting, we both knew what we wanted to do and where we wanted it to end. And I, why would I be stupid enough to try and choreograph Frank? I right. mean, and the problem is today with structurally the workforce scattered across the world and their command of English about as sophisticated as my command of Spanish or French or Italian or God knows what other language. Um, and editors being much more comfortable rewriting rather than trying to draw, they, full scripts are much more convenient. You turn it in, the editor makes notes, it goes to the artist, end of story. Um, an, a, I guess, an older, a, a creator from an older generation, I suppose one might say, I, um, an Archaeopteryx, perhaps. Um, I'm I'm in the wrong. I have the wrong mindset. Hmm. So, well, well anyway, I'll off. shut up now. Sorry. No, it's I, good. We're, we are friends. We are off to the races, uh, ladies, gentlemen, and as always, everyone in between. My name is Clifton Duncan. Uh, this is my podcast. You have just heard the opening salvo from my wonderful and distinguished <laughs> guests today. Uh, do me a favor, however you're consuming this content. Um, if you're on YouTube, like, share, and subscribe it. Um, if you love it, share it with your friends. If you hate it, share it with your enemies. Um, today, we have the, uh, the, the uncanny... Chris Claremont here to drop all these gems uh, of, of knowledge and wisdom uh, upon us. And what's also awesome is uh, that he has a penchant for not giving any fucks. So we, <laughs> we look forward. We can go that far. Well, uh, well, uh, he, well, I guess he has some left to give uh, at, at, at this stage, but uh, no, you know, we were um, the, 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 focus of uh, you know the world as it was in the world uh, today uh, i think we'll we'll talk about that um later on because the the irony is that even though you claim to have the quote unquote wrong mindset the fact of the matter is that um uh, and this is a recurring theme in uh, several entertainment mediums is that uh, people are going back to the older stories written by creators like you because they're not as inspired or as engaged by these newer stories so, and I'm somebody who, you know, I am a classically trained uh, actor. So I'm, you know, I'm, Shakespeare is kind of my guy. And I go back to those plays and I say, you know, is there anything being produced or written today that's going to be on that level that we're going to be performing hundreds and hundreds of years from now? And um, I'm not sure that that's the case, to be honest with you. Well, I, I mean, for me, it's, I've always been, gobsmacked by the reality that I'm now working on my third, if not fourth generation of readers, mm. which I find extraordinary uh, that, that people just keep coming back 
for more and passing them on to their children, their grandchildren, sometimes now the great-grandchildren. The, the point, I guess, for me is that Stan's teaching, I guess, because back then there was no internet, there was no uh, direct sale market. It was just you threw the books out there with every newspaper and magazine along with it, and you kept your fingers crossed. One kept one's fingers crossed. So as Stan put it, every reader is a new reader. Right. And you have to be able to introduce them to the characters immediately and completely. So there was always a page establishing Spidey's powers. Uh, one of my favorite adventures, I guess, was when Frank Miller and I did a fantastic a Marvel team-up with Spidey and the Fantastic Four. It was an annual, and it was the introduction of Karma. And the opening scene was her possessing Peter as he's spideying through the city mm. because she's heard of him and and figures he's a supervillain, so she, no one will mind if she grabs him because he need, he needs she needs him to rescue her her kid brother and sister, the twins. And all she saw was the Daily Bugle. So she didn't, she had no compunction until she actually grabbed him and realized, oh no, he's more than I think he is. But the first three or four pages is Frank and I figuring out using karma as the face of the new reader, how to introduce Spidey's powers in a cool, visually and storytelling exciting way that that old readers won't find boring and new readers will be exciting of, oh that's who he is that's what he does and hopefully her sense of wonder at discovering all of his abilities will try will echo the the hopefully the sense of wonder of uh, of the new readers hmm. whereas today since everything is structured around a five arc run that will then be reproduced as either a trade paperback or a hardcover or bound up into something um, else, it doesn't happen like that anymore. You have, if one comes in on the third or fourth issue, it's quite often you have no idea who anybody is because it was all maybe established in the first and why over why do it again and again um and a lot of times you one is as a reader one is presented with a situation where the writer assumes that the audience knows who everybody is and i've uh, i look on it as a new reader and most of the time, I find it a very challenging experience. So what I try to do with a story is find a way artfully to tell the reader the basics. It may well be that they've been reading the book or the titles for centuries. But I'm not interested in as much in the people who've been here forever. I want 
the newbies. I want more and more newbies to come in and ideally be be entranced by the story and, and intrigued by the characters and come away from the arc or the story and then the arc wanting to see what happens next. Right. It, you know, it's that's what's so fascinating I found when I was reading uh, the Phoenix Saga is, um, you know, I'm, I'm definitely a stickler for structure and um, and <laughs> I, I, I definitely like I was reading um, Aristotle's poetics and he talks, you know, they, they had very strict ideas about, you know, the what what a drama or that they call it an epic poem basically should, you know, the sort of form it should take and <laughs> the genius of the writer was to work within those parameters. And so as I'm looking at, uh, you know, for me, it was a three act tragedy uh, composed of nine issues and it was very. And it's interesting because I, I would notice, you know, from the opening, I was like, yeah, okay, recap, uh, you know, because it, to me, it, it speaks back to my days in the theater where, you know, every night it's a new audience. So you have to do it as if it's the first time. Mm -hmm. And, um, but what I also loved is that uh, within that structure um, and each issue is its own story in a way, even though it's, it's, it's mm -hmm. a continuation of a, an ongoing narrative is that, you know, you have to, I mean, everything you just said, the synergy of, you know, working with the artist and advancing the plot and doing so in a creative and exciting way. I mean, just even the the effort and the discipline that that takes, um, it seems that that has sort of gone to the wayside now. And um, it, it makes for less exciting reading, in my opinion. Just fixing a speaker. That's all good. I don't, can you hear me? I can hear you. Oh, yeah, no. yeah. I, but see, I, I agree with, see, the irony is here, I was... I started out as an actor. So the idea of really? me working at really? yeah, yeah. Working at Marvel was a way to pay rent for three weeks before I went out and did summer stock. Oh wow. Oh wow. And um and it was fine because I was a part-timer, so it was no big deal. And then Marvel had a, its own unique response to for, when I was part-time, all of the work would all invariably come in the two days a week I wasn't there. So they, you know, I figured they would fire me and instead they made me full time figuring on their part, one way or another, they will get their money back. And so, okay, I won't do summer stock this year. I'll hold off. And then next year came around and I got the X-Men and the next thing I knew it was seven years later. And I was thinking, hmm, maybe I'm not going to be an actor anymore. Hmm. So hmm? I was going to ask, uh, well, a two parter, actually, um, one, what was your favorite role that you that you ever played? And then the second was uh, <laughs> when when did you when did sanity uh, visit you and you and you said you're not going to be an actor anymore? Well, I think my favorite role actually had to be. In a rehearsal when we were doing Lear. And I got to play um, hmm, not sure it was one of the husbands or it was one of one of the princes. Have, it'll my the memory will come back to me in about five minutes after the the interview, but um, and that was cool because. I was going, my original role was King of France. So I'm on for like 10 lines and off. Right. Uh, so here I was actually playing 
maybe it was Goneril's husband. But was it Edmund? I or Edgar. We're talking a long, a long time, time ago. ago. <laughs> many galaxies far away. Right. Um, but since I had nothing to lose, I just winged it. And uh, I apparently surprised the director because I was good. And um, so I thought, you know, that I guess was the beginning of my realization that my teachers weren't fooling when they said it'll be slow going for about the first 10 years. And then when you hit your 30s, you'll probably be you'll never be out of work again because you have a character face. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought that was a great idea, except I also apparently had a character typewriter. So I was, I was off and running. Um, but that's also a way of defining my approach to scenes and stories. It's, right. it's how to present characters in a scene, in a structure and relating to them. And, and the thing I always found disconcerting about, again, the current presentations of the X-Canon is that it's all very single shot rostrum camera. I mean, the thing, the thing I always admired about Dave, about Dave Cockrum's art was that he visualized the universe as I try to do as 70 millimeter widescreen. You name, I mean, my classic trope is I'll sit down and type out a double spread for Dave where two, alien star fleets fighting it out in front of a binary star and bodies are flying by and little starships are running around and these two giant fleets are just going at each other like we're at Joplin. And, and it should look nothing like anything we've ever seen before. And so Dave came up with this splash page where you have two alien fleets, you have the Shi'ar and somebody else. And oh my gosh, the Shi'ar Navy looks like bugs. Whoever made a spaceship look like a bug before? I mean, we're talking like the early, the middle 70s. I mean, Star Wars was like still a week away. And it was wonderful. And then for me, because it was a team book, I'm always trying to write a scene where people are interacting in the same panel. So you could do dialogues back and forth rather than what often happens now is you'll have one panel, someone says, blah, blah. And then the next panel is the reply. And then the next panel is the reply to that. And instead of a conversation, you have eight single panels, or rather four single panels, because it takes two pages to have the conversation. And it's very pretty. But from a reading standpoint, it's, it's, it's very, for my eye, anyway, it's very slow. And it I just liked the idea of seeing characters interact from moment to moment rather than um, in each interact within the panel as opposed to across across the the gap between the panels, the border. And it to me it was a lot more fun and a lot more efficient because. I'm always conscious of the fact that in a standard format, one only has about a hundred panels right. to play with. 
and if you don't have if you can't if you're spending too much time with a with a a generic texture shot before you know it the issue the your 30 minutes are up and um it's for me if you're going to ask a reader to pay four bucks to buy the story in the first place you, one should go out of one's way to give them value for that money totally you know and it's interesting because you, you're you're speaking like an actor when, when you describe this stuff you know and i was reading through i mean your other work as well but you know just the the phoenix saga is freshest in my mind which i didn't read as a child actually mm -hmm. but i did uh, read as as an adult and um just page after page after page you know things like conflict relationships kept coming mm -hmm. up and it's i mean it's like basic storytelling stuff you know mm -hmm. and and uh, and it, even even the minor characters have like a backstory. They have names. Um, you know, like I remember in the, the Hellfire Club, you have these waiters who are interacting with each other. You have uh, you have the Hellfire henchmen who are mm -hmm. you know arguing with each other. And it's and to me as as a reader, I'm looking at people. That that's what draws me into the world. It's not just the art. It's not just you know the cool stuff happening. It is the interactions between the people. And like you said, the moment to moment. Um, unfolding of, you know, how these relationships work out, the, the conflict, whether internal or external, you know, both of those, uh, you know, working uh, in concert with one another. And, um, and I think that's why it's just, it's such a satisfying, it's so satisfying to read, but it, it's basically, it's basic storytelling, like 101 stuff, which seems to have gotten lost somewhere uh, in, in the ether uh, lately. Well, but it's, you know, Hamlet starts with three guys on a roof who have essentially nothing to do with the rest of the play they're just there to oh look a ghost ah and then bring in uh hamlet's friend who then goes out and gets hamlet but I, in shakespeare everybody has a moment and everybody from the waiter up through rosencrantz and Guildenstern up right. through Hamlet, up through um, Claudius. They all have, they, they are all there as real people. It's using, yes, they may only have 30 seconds, but on the other hand, there's enough there for Tom Stoppard to come up with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Right. Derived from that, it's, the thing the thing with comics is that it has a way of balancing the dynamic the structural creative dynamic of both art and prose in such a way that you you can provide flashes of both it's shorthand it's totally shorthand but the value of shorthand is a, the whole story is there. The whole character dynamic is there. But ideally, we have these little spaces between each and every panel where the reader can then pull in their imagination and have a little what if. Well, how did they get from panel one to panel two? Sometimes it's easily noticed because it, it's a sequential sequence of action boom, 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 but sometimes there's a gap. Well, what happened in that gap? 
what happened when uh, Jean was brought into the Hellfire Club? What happened when the X-Men snuck into the Hellfire Club? What worked? What did not work? We see how Logan feels when he pops up at the end of the issue. Now it's my turn. But what was happening underwater? Hmm. What is, is it just a sewer? Well, what's in that sewer? It's the thing, the advantage I guess comics has is unlike cinema, unlike TV, once you turn on, once you tune into the show, once the movie starts, you can't turn it off. You're sitting there watching it and you're stuck there for the two and a half hours until it's done and then you can kind of, well, I sighed 40 minutes ago. Why didn't they do this? Why did they do that? Why did they kill off Angela Bassett? Shame on them. You know, it's, oops, I just, sorry, I didn't say that. Anyone who's not, if there is anyone <laughs> foolish enough not to have seen Panther 2, I didn't say that. You didn't hear that. We'll move on. But no, but in a, in a short, comics are short stories. But if they're done right, they can be as rich a synergy of visual art as opposed, and textual art. Hmm. The words complement the pictures, the pictures complement the words. With, with each image, you can see the who, what, where, and when, but the text can give you the why and the how. Right. And that's, if you do it right, it's a lot of fun. But surprisingly, like many things, it's a lot more deceptively easy to do it wrong or to, to step on a banana peel. Right. So then I, I guess my next question is uh, your approach to character, because I was just looking up, I literally just Googled uh, characters created by Chris Claremont. And it's like Cable, there Gambit, Rogue, Mystique, you know, Kitty Pride, all these people. And, and I, I just, I guess my big question is, you know, what, what is it that you are, that you're able to tap into that, that allowed you to create so many indelible characters that have just, you know, they've, they've seeped their way into the popular consciousness. I mean, it's not an accident in my opinion. Well, I mean, one could just as easily ask George Martin. It's like, where did you come up with all those Westerosians? You know, it's, it's, I mean, how could William Shakespeare, this guy from Stratford-on-Avon, who was not what you could call, would presume to be a master thinker. He didn't go to any major academic institution in, in Britain at the time. And yet he walked in, he walked into London and took over British theater for the next 30 years. But a lot of Shakespeare's Where did great all that works. Come? But but a lot of Shakespeare's great works were adapted from uh, from other sources. You're creating people from whole cloth. But no, because I was interacting with with the, the template that Stan and Jack set up, in, you know, ten years earlier. Like it or not, and sometimes it is hard to admit it. Uh, the five character core characters of the X Men, the new X Men, were created by. Uh, Len Wein and Dave Cockrum. I just came in literally for the second scene. You know, Len wrote Giant Size Number One, and he structured 
what turned out to be X-Men 94 and 95, I scripted them. But then that, that was where I was off and running. But the templates were there. The beauty of it for me was that all they were was templates. We knew Aurora was black, what a surprise, and comes from Africa, an even bigger surprise. <laughs> Kurt was from uh, Germany. Uh, oh, sorry, Thunderbird was from the Southwest. Uh, Colossus was from what was then known as the Soviet Union. Um, Kurt, Aurora, Colossus, Thunderbird. Who am I missing? Um, am I missing? Uh, anyway, but so we had the form. But the beauty of it for me was there was absolutely no substance. All we had were the basic bits. Charles goes down to Kenya, meets this goddess on top of Kilimanjaro, makes her an offer she can't refuse. We're back. He, he goes to to Germany, runs into Kurt, makes him an offer, et cetera, et cetera. The irony is that Len's vision of who the characters would be and what turned out to be Dave's and my vision ended up being so diametrically opposite. Len's conception of Logan or of the Wolverine was that he was a young punk. Like, another teenager like everyone else in the X-Men, but more importantly, that the claws were part of his gloves, hmm. which both Dave and I couldn't figure out because if they're part of his gloves, then essentially Logan is Iron Man. And both of us felt that with no, meaning no disrespect to Robert Downey, Iron Man's boring. Which is why Downey ends up spending half the films trying to get out of the suit. Um, well, it's it's a brutal reality. I mean, flying around in a metal in a CGI suit. Um, it's it's as with with the Hulk. Um, it's hard to get it's hard to get your actor face on screen. It's hard to 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 present yourself in the best possible light for the audience and for one's career. So we're looking at this and thinking, well, one day Dave walks in and he's got a sketch on the back of the page of the claw of his fit of Logan's fist with the claws coming out of the back of his hand. And for me, it was like, look, that's cool. Why didn't we think of that? You know, why did, thank God you thought of it. Let's do it. And that again, turns into a defining moment for the character because everything that's happened since both in terms of story structure and cinema structure derives from the fact that he's got these adamantium claws as a part of him. Well, where'd they come from? Well, he's got bones that are wrapped around with adamantium. Well, where did they come from? Well, here comes Barry Windsor Smith to write the origin, damn it. Um, which isn't fair because I wanted to write it. <laughs> yeah, well, I, it's hard to argue, argue with Barry. But by the same token, the way Dave drew Logan's face, I looked at it and I thought, 
that's not a kid. Right. I don't care what anybody says. That is definitely not a kid. So since the team was primarily young around him, I said, okay, we'll go the other direction. Let's make him a totally mature person, an older person. Now we have someone who can actually present the team with a measure of context. What, what is the world he has seen versus the world that they are living in now? Um, the same with Roe. Okay, she's from Africa, from East Africa. Sorry, the noise you hear in the background is is the dog running back and forth. Little furry friend. Well, she's she's trapped in the room because they're painting in the house, and it tends to make her upset. And oh. she wants to find out what's going on outside. Luna, leave it. Sorry, sorry, listeners. Um, hold on. We love our canine friends here on the Clifton Podcast. Strikes again. But the thing with with Roe is okay, she's from East Africa. What does that mean? Well, mean East Africa storm? in 1975 isn't that far removed from 1965, which was a whole different reality. I mean, we look at it back, look back on it now from God help us, 50 years. Whereas then, aside from the reality, the physical reality of, do you really think people in Africa went around looking like that in 1975? In the sense that essentially wearing minimal tribal dress? It's like, what is that the way we want to present that reality? Well, where do we go from there? Which is, for me, going back on a, an even more classic trope, which is, well, her mom went to NYU or Columbia, met her dad. It, in that, it's a, it's a totally immigrant story, because a lot of that happened um, among people that I knew. So, but it was also to make her, in my mind, more easily identifiable to an audience that was primarily American, primarily Western. Um, and I wanted to go into more of, of the perception of immigrant reality, which was something I did know personally. And, and how does that interact? And where do we go from there? Um, with Kurt, Len envisaged him much more as what you see is what you get. He looks like that, therefore he is a demon, therefore he is haunted and angry. And again, Dave's and my response to it was, if I looked that, like that from the day I was born, I would seriously consider blowing out my brains because it's, that's just ridiculous. And, or getting my throat cut by whoever was next door to me because you, you must be a demon, let's kill you. So what would make that work? Well, what would be the ironic side of the equation? Perhaps that he sees this from a, a surprisingly religious 
perspective. I am this way because the Almighty made me so. Who am I to argue with that, with that highest authority? What's my next step? Well, I can either be a, a rebel and fight it, or I can be even more of a rebel and embrace it. Yes, this is the way I look, but why is that a hindrance? Why does that define me? What, what does it say about humanity that we judge people by who they look, what they look like, rather than finding a way to, to learn and understand who they rightfully are? Which, again, growing up in the late 50s and early 60s, mid-60s, that was a, a question often asked and a trope often argued, that, that do you judge people by what they look like rather than what they do, what they say, who they actually are? Um, this is a, a small, a very small comparison, but accent notwithstanding, I'm an immigrant, I'm English, I came off the boat, and I went to my first day of elementary school dressed as I would for an English public school. So I'm going in the door with knee socks, shoes, shorts, shirt, tie, blazer, the whole nine yards, I looked as proper as one could be. And I came home with a bloody nose and a black eye. Hmm. And that's because as far as my classmates were considered, who's the Ponzi git? Let's beat the living daylights out of him. And they did. And I never did that again. And it's the learning experience was being different is dangerous. Therefore, I will do everything I can to blend. I will not talk like them. I mean, I will not talk like the way I was. I used to. I will talk like them. I will act like them. I will be utterly innocuous because that way lies safety. And, you know, it took me quite a while to, and a lot of rock music, to grow out of that. But it, to me, it, those bits and pieces from my own reality gave me somewhat of a foundation for each of these characters. Uh, Thunderbird, in a sense, had the knack of being able to explain it all, even if it was in the 10-page stories that John Bolton and I did. The idea that he's in a sense, a stranger in his own land. He fights for this country, yet as far as this country is concerned, he is not even American, he's an engine. Where, you know, it's like back then, the, the name people had for those people was American. Why? Because America, Americo Vaspucci, is who we got the name of the country from. An Italian. It's, we couldn't find an indigenous way of defining the land that we have sadly stolen from everybody and claimed for our own. And Thunderbird, sadly, Len 
when he structured out Giant Size 2, he's looking at a publishing reality where they're only doing four issues a year. Therefore, to spend 10 or 15 issues building up a reality where the reader falls in love with Thunderbird and then you do something awful to it so it has an impact wasn't feasible. On the other hand, the shock of killing him off right off the bat might have, wow, they actually killed a character for real? So I guess I played it both ways in that I had to go with Len's story because there was no time to rewrite it when we when we actually shifted to a bi-monthly schedule. But then 35 issues later, it was Gene's turn. And that did have that, that surprise impact. But again, it's a matter of seeing a way to define the characters in terms that make them individuals, but also individuals with crises and anxieties and hopes and dreams that are as relevant as humanly possible to everyone who's reading it. That we can understand why they feel outcast, but also understand why they keep striving to overcome it, to find the better angel of their nature and the way to win. And I guess one could also say that the, the greatest exemplar of that is Magneto because he has every reason, every conceivable reason to hate the world he's in. And without argument. And yet Charlie keeps poking at him and there's that moment where, all right, I'll give it a shot. And there you go. But they should, I don't think any character, if one's taking it seriously as a writer, you can't do a one or two dimensional character because what's the point? You have, it's a seduction. And I wanna grab the heart of every reader I can conceivably get my hands on, emotional hands on. And I want to give them something worth falling for and embracing and coming back to see what happens next because if i don't then what's the point yeah the um make me think makes me think about the um the great playwright tony kushner who once uh <laughs> he, he once said that uh, audiences they're, they're, they're basically paying to watch us all suffer <laughs> they're paying to watch characters uh suffer and i know my approach as an actor with many roles is uh, i was I, I would try to find a way um to use, you know, I've been a smart ass since I was a kid. So, you know, my sense of humor or whatever, I try to find a way to infuse at the top, um, you know, in the first few scenes, like, you know, this is a person that's really attractive in some way and likable and charming. And then as the evening wears on, then you sort of, you know, hit, hit them with the gut punch. That's always like, the, you know, the, the, the spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. Mm -hmm. And I also love, um, it's just what you said, you know, people we're, we're drawn into, um, the the flaws and the complexities of the characters uh we, we you know as that's why i never really got into superman because he feels to me to be a little too perfect but you know i love uh, i love spider-man i love um you know i love reading the um 
the internal struggles of all these different characters and how they mm -hmm. bounce off of each other. And then what makes the X-Men heroic, you know, some of my conversations recently have been about the sort of loss of this idea of what a hero actually even is in our culture and society. But uh, to, to, to choose to make, which is often a more difficult choice, right? To, 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 to let their better natures win out uh, among, uh, amongst all the other challenges mm -hmm. um, is really what's inspirational and makes it uh, and more life-affirming in a way, you know? Well, see, the irony for me is I've always, I was always, I have always found Clark and Bruce far more intriguing as a writer than Superman and Batman. I mean, it's it, there's uh, the cla quote unquote classic line from Justice League: "What's your superpower? I'm rich." And then one gets to the end, and it's you know. Clark is saying to Bruce, thank you for paying the, you know, for buying back the farm. How'd you do it? I bought the bank. I was like, really? You couldn't have just like paid the loan, you know, <laughs> just walked in, dropped a couple of notes on the table and that's it. You had to buy the bank. Okay. But, and then sitting through the movie and watching him hand build, build this giant, Transport. You know, it's like you can't hire people. No, I'm Batman. I have to do it myself. Batman, eh? But Bruce, the thought processes that went into that, the the the, the aloneness he must feel, and the aloneness in a way that Clark must feel, being the last sole survivor, and all of that stuff of Krypton, that always intrigued me. But. Right. Putting on the suits, yeah, you know it's going to, you know it's going to have a happy ending because that's what the comics code was all about back in the 50s and 60s. It in very specific words, it said the heroes have to win, no question about it. Uh, so the trick for me, for Frank Miller, for all of us at Marvel, was okay, but what about the, the grace notes in between the rules? How again? the space between the panels. This is where the imagination can slip in and, and maybe suggest something that isn't quite as obvious up front. And so the, the way I ended up writing the X canon mostly, but all the other stuff as well, was from the perspective you can read it at 14 and you will understand one level of the story. At 21, you might understand a different one. Mm -hmm. But at 35, hmm, then it gets a lot more interesting. But ideally, each time one comes back to the story, one enjoys a different element. What is this the time, the, the moment one looks at the art? Is this the moment one sees how the words and the art interact? Is this the moment where you look at Aurora? and Kurt reacting to what Logan's doing off panel to a bunch of, vil of guards. Maybe he's tickling them. Maybe he's you know, bribing them, make making an offer they can't refuse. But that's where the reader's imagination comes into play. The obvious thing is, oh my gosh, what is he doing? Ew, he's cutting them to pieces, but maybe not. Or maybe something completely different. Maybe they deserve it. 
um, the thing that is sort of fascinating me these the last few months is I've been writing a couple of stories last year and again this year where Logan finds himself in a situation where he no longer has powers. Hmm. But he's still got the adamantium and the claws still come out of his hand, come through his hand, but he's just bleeding all over the place. And he's suddenly with now a, an unenhanced body schlepping around all of this adamantium, which has to weigh a lot, and trying to deal with it in terms of fighting, which involves speed and agility and power, but dealing with the wounds that he is doing to himself at the same time. And how does he feel about that? How do the people around him feel about that? How, how can they help him? Does he want to be helped? Does, I, one of my favorite arcs that never quite got finished the way I wanted to because I got fired was him dealing with a growing awareness that he is actually dying. And what does that mean to him? How... How can he find a way to accomplish the necessary mission that he's doing to keep his teammates that are with him safe? But at the end, he is going to die. Is that a good thing? A bad thing? What paths does he take and why? Um, that to me is fun. That to me is the whole point of storytelling is is answering the question what happens next well even in listening to you speak i jotted down uh, two words and they they remind me of what i went through when i was in conservatory we were told that the two cornerstones of of acting are or two of the cornerstones are curiosity and empathy mm -hmm. and and everything you're talking about right now it's the curiosity of what's what would happen if what would happen if and the empathy to say you know this is how i feel about that and i'm going to and on top of that, it's the, you know, you're, you're very audience focused as well. And I think one of the issues that I have with much of our culture today, but I think it also seeps into a lot of our storytelling, a lot of our um, art and entertainment is that uh, the, these kinds of questions are sort of on the back burner. And it's very, a lot of writers now are very sort of um, self-centered and they're <laughs> worried about their own sort of putting across their own message, their own agenda, as opposed to as opposed to asking these basic sort of very emotional, very feeling um, storytelling questions and and saying to themselves, well, what will hook the audience? You know, I mean, you laugh, but so I, I feel like you have some opinions about that. Well, it's a, I think the quest, those, that applies to every writer in every situation. It's just how, how one chooses to answer it. Um, yeah, I'm trying to tell a story the story has a, has resonance ideally to the audience has resonance to me you know people would ask where do you get where do your ideas come from and my stock answer is the idea bank in poughkeepsie <laughs> i mean it's like hey bill where do you get all these neat plays and the poems as well uh, 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 uh. 
I, I, you know, I don't know. <laughs> I'm running around asking, looking for Gwyneth Paltrow and all she'll do is giving, you know, all she's doing is selling weird cosmetics. Um, sorry, cheap movie. Joke. <laughs> uh, but it's, you know, I'm, I'm one of the, I'm like the exception in my family that prove, I guess, proves the rule. Everyone else are lawyers and, uh, uh, doctors. I'm the writer, but it, and the joke is that, that, um, People will ask in interviews or just conversation, what is it that you love passionately? And I would say acting. I've always loved acting. Why? Because I couldn't do it. Hmm. It was a challenge. It was wonderful because it was like the great unknown. I started out as a political theorist. You know, I, I wanted to find the answer to the Cold War. And then I realized why no one cares. And, and the answer to the Cold War is, is how to, you know, start listening to one another. But acting, it's like walking out on the stage in front of real people. And oh my God, please let me remember my lines. Except I always wrote. I was always scribbling things down on paper. I had no idea why or where I was going with them. I would just do it. And then discovering that people will actually pay me to do it was like, ooh, I should try this more often. And I did, and I did, and I did. And suddenly, as I said, seven years went by and I realized I hadn't been to an audition and I wasn't about to go to an audition. Um, I just kept writing. So it's, You know, the, the, the joke with me, the irony with me, the infuri infuriating thing with me is there I was at the beginning of the 90s and I'd just been fired. And my friend George Martin was just starting this series. And this unknown woman named J.K. Rowling was sitting on a, on a train scribbling her new book. And what did I end up doing? You know, one was Game of Thrones, the other was was Hogwarts, and I get a call from an editor saying George Lucas is looking for someone to write a novelization of Willow, and so I spent five years writing a novelization of Willow, with my wife saying, "You moron, <laughs> you have an opportunity to do your own stuff," and I'm saying, "But it's George Lucas, honey," which just goes to show, even at approaching the age of fifty, that. 12 year old fan person inside mm -hmm. it's like oh my gosh this is a chance to meet george lucas who did star wars honey and that's where she threw up her hands in disgust and said you twerp but it's the things that drive us are really surprisingly primal and surprisingly unknown and surprisingly surprising. You don't see the, the joke line is never saw that coming. Even when you're supposed to, even when you should open your eyes and take a look.
now hopefully there's an alternate reality where I did something else and it was better or it might have lasted or it might have crashed and burned who the heck knows but the most disconcerting realization is that there's a reason yesterday is yesterday and whatever you intended to do then you did something else now you just got to sit down and figure it out and go in the direction one wishes to go um and that's the only way to look at it uh who you are is who you are have fun otherwise you're screwed and it's the thing the thing that i think drives me is meeting all the people going to signings going to conventions meeting the people who actually read this stuff and realizing i mean 4 years ago beginning of 19 when the world was a little more sane hmm. <laughs> i ended up in moscow for the first you know never been before hmm. and for a signing and sitting in a in a hall sort of in the middle in the city but in the middle of nowhere signing x-men for russian fans was both the most extraordinary and most exciting thing imaginable because again it's having these young men and young women thank goodness always young women coming up and crying some of them in actual tears because the stories meant that much to them and it's hard to explain to someone who is hasn't been in that moment it's the most extraordinary feeling it's sitting there and saying what did i do i mean how how could something i wrote have had such an impact on this person because to sit back and go i'm so cool because something i wrote had this impact on this person it's it's not that might be the most logical way of looking at it but the other side is just and it's not the first time and it's not the only time and it's not restricted to moscow it's restricted to every place it's sorry it's part of every place i've ever been people are have that the stories have had that kind of impact and the brutal reality is all i was trying to do was write a really good story that was worth the 40 minutes it may have taken you to read it it's just the corollary the follow on of that is what is what is extraordinary then extraordinary now extraordinary whenever it happens again and there's no way to figure out how it happened because if one knew how it happened you keep trying to do it that way again and it would never work 
because you be poisoned, sort of feel like you would be poisoning the well. So for me, all I end, can end up doing is trusting the characters and trying to put them in a in an arc, a story, a moment that is perhaps utterly terrifying or utterly damaging, but at the same time, when one's reading it, you're sitting there going, you'll, you'll find a way, you'll find a way, you'll find a way. And sometimes they will, and sometimes perhaps not so much. Well, I think the the uh, last question I would, well, it's a two-parter <laughs> that, that I would have for you. I do talk too much. I apologize for that. No, no. Well, like I said before, nobody is here to hear what I have to say. They're here to hear <laughs> what you have to say. Remember, it's always about your scene partner. Um, but, uh, you know, I guess riffing off of the idea of seeing these young people, um, it's a two-parter uh, question, uh, and one I ask e each of my guests. One is, you know, what words of wisdom and advice would you have to young artists, young writers who are starting out now? And I follow that up with, um, what do you think is the role of the um, of the artist in our society, in our culture, as it is as it stands today? I assume by artist you're talking about the wider definition of the term, not simply someone who draws. Yeah, correct, correct. Okay. Well, this is going to sound weird. When I was a young punk, Ian McKellen would come to New York every few years to do acting Shakespeare. And essentially, he'd settle in a theater for six weeks and teach a master class in, in acting, disguised as, I will now perform a bunch of monologues from Shakespeare and explain what they mean to you. And it would be wonderful. I mean, not just the performance themselves, but the, uh, the analysis and structure he, that went into his bringing them to life. And then 30 years later, they're filming X1. And we have the, the launch party at Governor's Island. And I get a chance to meet who is now Sir Ian. And I excused myself to my wife and I went over there and before I could get a word out of my mouth, dear boy, dear boy, thank you so much <laughs> for all that you, and I'm going, huh, huh? And it's just, and then he, he called over Hugh Jackman and it was like, oh my God, he's <laughs> really tall. Right. But, the thing is that to come up with characters, to come up with scenes, to come up with stories that can reach out to an audience, whether it's a young woman in Moscow or another young woman in, in um, Nevada, who is in tears because she was Mormon and she loved the characters passionately. And her husband was willing to let her read them while the kids were so young that it didn't impact them. But now they were old enough to read and he felt that the comics were inappropriate for 
for his children. And she had to give them up. And she's in tears. Her heart was broken because she could not. These were her friends and they meant the world to her. And now she had to say goodbye. The irony, of course, as a weird subset, is having fans who are Mormons, who are both devout Mormons and sort of renegade Mormons, gay Mormons, uh, who have been cast aside by their church, yet they love the book. The, these characters have reach out to them, but at the same time, they also reach out to young Mormons who, are, who see their struggle as members of their church as analogous to the to the x-men struggle to find a place in their world but to to see the effect that the characters have on the readers whether it's Ian McKellen, whether it's some kid, is the most extraordinary experience. It's like, wow. I mean, who'd have thought? And how can I think it again? Um, and the, the terrifying downside is that once one establishes a benchmark like that, you can't go low anymore. You got to keep going higher. And that's that's both challenging and a hell of a lot of fun. But it always comes back to questions. Why? Why are we here? What this is again what Kurt asks asks himself, I'm here, I have these abilities. This can't be an accident. I mean, it. if there is a higher authority, then that higher authority must have a plan. If I'm part of that plan, how do I fit in? But if I'm going to fit in, I have to establish a, I don't know, a a set of ground rules that work for me. And in this case, the ground rules are in Kurt's place, abiding by what he has read in, in the New Testament. At least the original words, not the variations that have come on it ever since. You know, the, the loving thy neighbor, the doing the doing good, regardless of whether the person is of your tribe or not. To me, that, that seems, has always seemed so much more valuable, and especially in the last, in the 21st century thus far, all the more necessary. Mm. I mean, the, the, the saddest thing about God Loves, Man Kills is that it, it's, you a, it's even more valid now than it was then. And B, there are an increasing number of readers who think William Stryker has the right idea. And it's like, where the heck did that come from? <laughs> That's not the story at all. But that 
people are reading it that way means it's all the more necessary as as fingers crossed a a, a story that has a meaning and please pay more attention to it to get the better to get the reading right um i think I look at the the, the X-Men movies and on some levels I see moments that are almost there. I guess closest would be Days of Future Past, which yeah, at least really. was, well, it, because it actually embraced the original story and it had the original ending, which is what how it's supposed to but people say well now that it's back the x-men are part of the marvel universe what do you think will happen next i have no idea what will happen next i want to know what will happen next i want to see the movie when it comes out but for me the the story has to be about like it or not prejudice it has to be about people trying to find a way to fit in to a world to forgive the trope that fears and hates them simply because they exist and to me that's important that's always been important that will always be important because that's a fear and a hatred that's far, far more prevalent now than any of, uh, certainly that I hoped 25 years ago. If I read, sorry, I'm, this is, I look at all the things that have happened within this country in the last five years compared to the last 70 years. And the thought comes to mind, have we learned nothing? Are we that polarized? And are we that unaware of where polarization, any polarization to that extreme will lead? It's, for me, this is all, the book has always, the characters have always been about building bridges mm. and to find that the stories are evolving to a place where there don't seem to be as many bridges makes me very sad as both reader and writer. Yeah, well, it's resonates. sort of like, hmm? I was gonna say, yeah, well, it resonates with me, you know, the um, God loves, man kills, the idea of um, extremist ideologies, um, and people who have, you know, watched this channel for a while, they know my positions on many things. And, um, you know, the, these, I think, you know, I hate to be a downer, but I, I think that story will always be sort of timeless, um, because uh, timely and timeless, because, you know, the, the 
even though I think ideally we want, at least someone like me wants to build bridges, um, I think right now the polarization that we're seeing is a result of these dueling ideologies. And that's sort of, you know, what's at the core of, um, of that story. And, um, you know, my position on that is that I feel like if people turned off the news and got off uh, social media and just talked to one another, we would find out that we have far more in common um, than, than we're led to believe. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, it is sort of the, the, the tragedy of, of now is, is that um, I think there's a lot of profit, um, both political and monetary, um, mm -hmm. being extracted from these divisions. Um, uh, but I think, you know, one note of hope, though, is that uh, I think more and more people are realizing that. And um, I see people from all across, you know, different sort of ideological spectrums who are saying, um, yeah, something's got to give and we can't keep going, going this route. So th there is a, there is a glimmer of hope, but I do think at the same time, just, I mean, and you, and you know this all obviously, but uh, you know, human, human flaws, human frailty, you know, we're always going to find some reason to fight. Well, you know, the first half of Shakespeare's plays were all about war and killing Kings. Mm. He didn't get, into the meaty stuff until later on, but it's, I mean, yeah, it's, it's always much more fun to have giant battleships blowing each other up because it looks really cool. Um, the problem is thinking about the guy who, the men, now the men and women who are in the ships watching the water rising and knowing you know, the next breath is going to be my last. What, mm. why, what's the point? What, what do I say? If one's belief goes that way, when I get to the pearly gates and, you know, I'm only 19. What, what could I have done? What should I have done? How, how do we make a difference? I think that this is, for me, why I always much prefer writing the X canon as people in their adolescence and their barely 20s, because again, this is going back to the, my beginning. You were almost always granted a second chance. Your kid, you screwed up. Now, Take another shot at it. Now, the tendency seems, well, we'll just throw you in the slammer for the rest of your life, and that's that. Uh, but it's, it's trying to find a way to look beneath the skin, literally, because once you peel off the outside layer, we are all identical. It's not like the heart moves to a different part of the body. It's not like the bones are inside out or upside down. We are all one core species. Why is it so hard to look at the outer shell as a, something to divide us rather than, wow, that's really cool. Well, you know, I, you, I think, oh, sorry. I was gonna say, I think no. um, what is, uh, What's interesting about that is that um, there are people now who I, th I think I think we're in a new battle in a way uh, as far as that goes, because there are people now who my experience has been that uh, and I just turned 40. 
my experience has been you're that, a kid um, <laughs> you know it's, it's always funny you know, being being a guy there's always somebody who's like yeah you know you a baby uh, no matter how old you are but um you know my my experience has been that um, i have i feel like i'm a part of a generation that has enjoyed the the fruits that, that's 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 reaped the benefits of all the struggles and the strife and sacrifices made by those who came before me but now it seems as though the people who ostensibly are working on my behalf are deliberately re-racializing society and, and redividing society. They're, they're, they've gone past the point of mm -hmm. saying, um, in my experience, most people want to say like, oh, you know, I don't, I don't see color. And, and, and what they mean is that uh, I don't use your skin color to, you know, in my evaluation of you as a human being, but there's a sect of people. And I think they are, unfortunately, they've, they are, They've flooded a lot of our universities, a lot of our entertainment mechanisms, um, and they're saying, no, you, you need to see this, because if you don't see this, if you don't see my skin color or my sexuality or my gender, so on and so forth, then you're denying uh, a part of who I am. And so it, there's a very weird thing that's going on and um, where now we're sort of being resegregated in a way and, and, being, mm. and being forced to look at these these outside differences when I think most people that I've met um, understand that it doesn't really it doesn't really matter. Sure, there's going to be conflict and, and um, you know, people will always, you know, like like we said before, people are people. They're going to find a reason to hate you, um, you know, but it, it, I think that the, the grand point that I'm making is that the, the people who claim to be working on my behalf now in terms of like racial justice are sort of overcorrecting in a way and are creating even more division. But I guess for me, by the time I was 20, I'd seen three assassinations. Right. You know, two Kennedys, one King. I'd seen two attempted assassinations. Uh, it's, you know, it's like reaching 1980 and thinking, ah, we're not going to be stupid enough to do another Vietnam. Thank God for that. No, we're going to do something even worse. Yeah. And, and no, I mean, this, and this goes back to me being both a fantasist and a political theorist, just imagining what would have happened if, if Teddy Rose, if sorry, Franklin Roosevelt had lived perhaps another year. And I have no guarantee that he would have done this, but it's just so that when the French said, give us true, can we, can you let us let the Japanese prisoners of war out so they can hold on to Vietnam, well, to Indochina until we got the foreign legion, all of whom were mostly ex-Nazis at that point, out to hold on to our colony. And that what would have happened if that had gone that way and Franklin had just said, no, Ho Chi Minh won, you lost, bye-bye. Because pointing out that Ho Chi Minh, yes, was a communist, but he was a Russian communist, and the Russian communists are different from the Chinese communists. And wait, who have the Vietnamese hated for centuries? Oh, the Chinese. So, but even more importantly, the two books that Ho Chi Minh most respected in his young studies as, as an academic were the Declaration of Independence and 
the original Constitution of the United States because they spoke eloquently to what he wanted for his nation. And leaving aside the 65,000 names on the wall, if we'd only managed to cut a deal with them in the 40s, who knows how the next 25 years would have gone in Southeast Asia, perhaps elsewhere in the world. The, the unwillingness to listen to other people, to trust other people on an, on an international basis, the urge to just punch, all you have to do is look in Ukraine to get your own way, is something weirdly enough that we can, that is directly addressable in comics. Isn't that weird? That, but to do it in a way again that makes the that gives the reader a deep, sorry, I'm, an interest in what's going on, people that they are that the reader loves, struggles that they care about. You know, it's it's creating characters that you can that you can read and think i've had a conversation like that i know people who are like that i know situations that are like that that have nothing to do with the skin type outfits and you know wolverine being thrown into the sewer and and dark phoenix roaming across the galaxy it's it's because at the end of the story a young woman makes a choice if i stay phoenix i have to stay totally in control of myself for the rest of my immortal life and i if i make a mistake people will die and i can't do that and then scott has to watch her make her sacrifice and it's a big deal in terms of cosmic characters, but in reality, it's a young woman coming to a crossroads and on one level, I haven't the hubris that makes me say, I can do this. On the other level, it's her taking a path that brings her existence to an end. Mm. And that's, it's something I could, I'm not, if, if I faced that choice, I'm not sure where, which way I would go, but perhaps that's why she's a hero and I'm not. Well, I was going to say, you know, it's, it's so, you know, no, I'm not going to get emotional. I'm not going to cry on camera unless I'm getting paid. But um, it, it, to me, even though it's such a tragic ending, and I mean, I love that the sort of the through line throughout that saga is the love story, the love between Scott and Jean. And um, when she makes that sacrifice in a way, and you know, you have to watch her kind of say this as well, but uh, you know, he, excuse me, she, it, it's a self-sacrifice and that it, it's a very mature choice. She understands, because uh, you know, because you wrote that she's, she's very afraid of herself throughout, throughout the entire arc of the story. Oh yeah. And, and she has, she has this level of self-recognition that I think is very, very mature. 
But uh, I think what makes her the hero is that she loves humanity more than herself. And she realizes what she needs to do. I mean, at least in my interpretation. So, mm -hmm. I mean, maybe, um, you know, and I think both of us were sort of bleeding heart artists, right? So we, we, hmm. we want to maintain that love for humanity. So maybe we would make that choice. I don't know. Maybe, maybe you shouldn't uh, <laughs> be so down on yourself. Well, it's not that. It's just um, conceptualizing is easy. I, but that's a moment one. You can't say I will or I won't until you actually come to that moment. Right. And, and coming to that moment, all bets are off. And I can hypothesize up, down and sideways with respect to my wife, with respect to my kids, with respect to me or my dog or the cat or whatever. But, you know, until the car goes off the rails, until something happens, it's all hypothesis and hypothesis is levels and levels and levels of imagination. It's, it's a great foundation for a scene and for preparing for a scene. But depending on, on the mood of, of the performance the day, whether it's a matinee or an evening or whether it's a Monday versus a Thursday, what do you do if you walk out on stage and and I want to go the other way. What would happen? Aside from the fact that everybody else on stage is going to kill you. <laughs> but it it's always it's always a guessing game until it isn't. Mm. But because it's a guessing game, you can there's room to there's room to wriggle wiggle and there's room to play. But that's the joy of writing. It, it's it's so it always cracks me up about award shows. The writer's tucked into the middle, but without the writer, none of this would have happened. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's. Um, but that's that's the reality. Nobody. It's very hard to remember the writer when you're looking at a page, this really brilliant Neil Adams splash page. Except I came up with one of the, the core splash pages that Neil ever drew, which is the Sentinels flying into the sun. So I was I was stuck with the X-Men from the very beginning of my non-existent career. I don't know. I, I, I disagree with you on that, though, because it even though. I mean, because you and I are sitting here talking about your writing, we're talking about Shakespeare, you know, we talk about Greek tragedy, Chekhov, all these other authors. Um, you know, your, your ideas, your, your craftsmanship, craftspersonship, excuse me. Um, I mean, it that that I do, I do have sympathy for the, the position that you, you know, you might feel undervalued as a writer, but at the same time, no, you know, no, it's not. Oh, am I misinterpreting that? No, no, it's not undervalued. It's that Someone will pay a ridiculous amount of money for a John Byrne, Terry Austin, Chris Claremont, Phoenix Page splash. They will not pay a ridiculous amount of money for the full script that created it, hmm. for the script page that created it. 
Uh, that's the reality of the world. Uh, you, the, the film is a pro is a synergy of, of many different talents, but it all has to begin with the writer's screenplay that leads to the producer saying, let's make a movie that leads to hiring the director that leads to hiring the director of photography that leads to hiring the actors, all of which come together. But the, the brutal reality is while no one can say, I can write a script, everyone feels the need to say, but I can make it a better, just a twitch here and a twitch there. Oh yeah. Um, and it's, it's the same to an extent, sadly, even in comics, because now you have people writing full scripts and they're brilliant full scripts and that's great, but what's lost in the synergy is finding the, the, the artist with whom one can synergize in the way that Stan did with Jack for as long as it lasted, that I did with Dave Cockrum and John Byrne and Paul Smith and Walt Simonson, where it would just be a matter of plot and the, the artist would interpret it. And then I would pick it up afterwards and come up with the actual dialogue it's on one level it's it's me saying in the overall world writers can be seen or can see themselves as being undervalued because everybody wants the hot artist but at the same time without that without the writer nobody would have jobs well nobody would have the people would not have a, a, a something cool to read. It's like the old saying is a great artist will always do great work, but a great writer teamed up with him will make it better. A good writer will do lots of great work good artist or bad artist, ideally it'll shine through. I've got, I mucked it up, of course, but that's, that's so, somewhat in the, in the direction. And I know it sounds so, like a contradiction. Um, writers, grumping about writers getting no respect, even though we define the structure in comics. But, c'est la vie. You know, I think what it comes down to is is having a really cool idea and finding the person with which I can work with who will bring it to life. Hmm. And going back to what I said a couple of hours, an hour and a half ago, the nice thing about comics is it takes just three of us, hmm. me, an artist, ideally an empathic editor. And we can do it. Every other, I mean, I can write a novel and I, I can do it well, but the challenge is I have to spend a thousand words describing a moment that, well, 
10, 20 years ago, we did, our, Marvel did a 9-11 memorial. And it was a writer teamed up with an artist. And Salvador La Roca and I did this, what I thought then and now is a magnificent piece, which is five kids, one from each major race, praying. In the background are the ruins of, of the Trade Center and in between are first responders, a horde of them, among whom are the, the core cast of Extreme X-Men as first responders. And that was it. And it, it, I look at the page now and it still grabs my heart. And someone was asking me, well, what did you do? I said, I'm the writer. But what did you do? I said, I'm the writer, but there are no words on the page. And I said, yes, there are. There are about 2,300 words on the page. Hmm. Where? I said, you're looking at them. My point being that uh, my description to Salva was extremely complete, complete, and it took about three pages. So it came out to about 2,600 words, 2,300 words. But once he drew the picture, I didn't need to say anything else. It was all there in the art. It's being a team, being a synergy doesn't mean you have equal time. It means that ideally, I, the writer, will point the artist in the right direction. The artist will fulfill what, what is asked of him or her in the plot or the script. And then I'll finish it off. But sometimes that'll mean 100 words on a page. Sometimes it'll mean three words on a page. It's a synergy. And it's a direct synergy. That's a lot of fun. If I were writing a novel, as I said, it would be a lot more grandiose and a lot more wordy. But a comic, you can grab someone with a picture. And the best, the best picture maybe doesn't need another word on it. So you keep trying till you get it right. And for me, that's, and it's only taken me 50 years to realize it, more or less, that's a heck of a lot of fun. Hmm. And, and it's, I guess, up to me to keep trying to, as hard as I can to keep getting away with it. Um, because... The weird thing is a lot of times words can be really boring, but the images can make you sit back and go, wow. So for better or worse, I'm, I'm stuck on the road I, I've inadvertently chosen for myself. And maybe one day if, if the gods are kind, gods, goddesses, all of the above are kind. I, we will get the Dark Phoenix saga that we've all been dreaming about. Oh man, I just, when I saw that they were going to, there was going to be a single movie called Phoenix, I was just like, 
come on guys we we need we we need like a whole epic but the same way they built no, up to the a, to the infinity war a mini series i mean game series game of thrones i mean just start at the beginning and keep going and see what happens next but yeah I, I, it's just if they just called it gene gray has a really really bad day <laughs> it at least would have made sense yeah yeah. You know, I mean, I'm sitting there looking and thinking Sophie Turner is absolutely perfect. But, you know, meaning no disrespect to Famke. Um, but, you know, I just. Well, you have to build to that. I mean, you know, just I mean, you need you need. I mean, I want I want Scott and Jean. I want that relationship to be strong as a rock. I need, I need to see that at the, at the very least, you know, oh, like yeah. that, that needs to be built. And just, you know, the, the whole, the, the, the impact of that loss, you know, has to be felt and you can't just do that in the span of one movie or even mm -hmm. two movies, even uh, maybe even three movies. Like, you know, maybe, maybe it should be. Well, no, because, but, but see the, the other problem is three movies. You're talking nine years, eight, you know, six years, nine years and people change. Uh, maybe you don't, the actor doesn't want to be part of it for that long a time. Maybe another job comes along that's much more fun. Um, you know, Pierce Brosnan might win. Hey, would you like to be Indiana Jones? Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. We've just renewed Remington Steel. They'll wait a year, won't they? No. Or Tom Selleck. You could have been Indiana Jones, dude. But they renewed Magnum. You know, it's there's all that it's always something, but on the flip side, it's like shorthand has a value in some levels, but on others, it's it. You need you need. the audience to, to literally fall in love. And it's to have that happen in two and a half hours on screen is, is extraordinarily rare. And you never know when real life is gonna step in and, and, and screw it up. I mean, I'm, I happily would have watched Chadwick Boseman do Black Panther for ever. But fate had other ideas. And that, you know, it's, it's, so that's why I'm, I'll be interested to see where, where Marvel, well, just in a weird sort of way, when you were talking about Scott and Jean, my first thought in the background is, yeah, but the reality is that even if if Gene or Scott and or Marico live 150 years, which, you know, figured out, Logan and Gene are functionally immortal. They'll be with a they'll be with the universe till the end of time. And then what? Well, what happens is. All the stars go out, 
Logan and Gene pick up where they left off, and about seven seconds later, wham, a new Big Bang. And we do it all over again. But see, that's my secret history, future history of the Omniverse. It, it started with Logan and Gene. It'll keep going with Logan and Gene. And, you know, welcome to the, welcome to the adventure. But the way I, the reason I put it that way is, as I keep, you said and I've said again and again, it has to be all about people, not about events, not about if you're going to have, if you're going to make a giant island running around the world where all the mutants live, fine. But that doesn't matter if you can't present stories about the people on the island, about what they want, where they're going, what, what are their dreams, what are their regrets. Do they have any relatives outside the island? Do they care if, you know, the, um, what will the island be like for their children or grandchildren? They're all an infinite number of questions that every writer should be asking of themselves. And they're all it's integral to the reality of, of the setting but the setting is only a place for people to, to deal with one another. And if you don't have that aspect of it, then you're, you're creating a real risk for the stories and the readers. Because if there's nothing to anchor it, if there's nothing to bond for the readers to bond with, to care about, to embrace, or to argue with then yeah it, there's nothing there and it, that applies it, it applies to uh krakoa it applies to gotham it applies to metropolis it's that's the, the question that every writer every editor has to ask and from those answers ideally is where the really, really, really cool stuff comes. Mm. And it doesn't matter what costume you wear. What it matters is the person who's wearing it and what they want and what they're willing to do or sacrifice to achieve it. That's what I thought. Um, when people, you know, there are people who would um, say, I don't get the whole superhero movie thing. And and I would I would say like no the the point isn't all the, the the CGI and all the costumes what what Marvel did which is why these movies kept making a billion dollars a piece eventually is except that they the made us they made us fall say what except for the X Men well they, they'll they, they'll do it right at some point I, I I hope they do but the the point is that you know they they made us fall in love with the people underneath the costumes and that and that's, that's sort of that, that's the thing that's exactly it I mean that's yeah. the brilliance. Of, of Lauren Schuler Donner's casting on the X-Men and of Kevin Feige's on, on the Marvel movies. <clears throat> it's not, and you could say the same thing about Westerns. You could say the same things about black and white crime stories. You can, vampire stories. That's, the, it's not about the structural tropes. It's about the people and the stories. And if you have, the right people 
and the right stories, you can tell anything and get away with anything. Unless you're, you're doing that incredibly awful pirate movie um, that I can't remember the title of, so why did I even bring it up in the first place? Sorry. Um, my apologies. But it's like everything else. You start with the basics and move up from there. Yeah. And um, I guess from my perspective, I've had a ridiculous amount of luck with the basics. And I like to think, uh, even as the dog starts barking out of fear, annoyance, <laughs> I like to think I'm not done yet. So I'll keep trying till I get it right. Well, uh, it's been nearly two hours. I think that's a, a as good a place much. as, no. well, like I said uh, repeatedly, no one is here to hear what <laughs> I have to say. They are here to hear what you have to say. And I do think that, um, you know, I, I told you off air, so to speak, that uh, I, I You've already given so many interviews, and it's all, and, and they tend to be more pop culture related. But uh, I, I wanted to dig into the nitty gritty of like craft and art, and that's exactly, um, <laughs> I think that's what happened, you know. And, and I think um, if I can serve as sort of a conduit to people to to let people know the kind of work and the kind of consideration really that goes into making great art, then that's and that's a wonderful thing. And I think, um, you know, I think you you did that beautifully. So uh, I, I have to thank you. Mr. Claremont, even though, I, I, even if you don't believe it. <laughs> oh, no, no. I just find it weird because with it's because it's a, Mac, a mini Mac. I'm looking at the screen, which is, which is on the left side of the, since the, it's lying on its side, it's on the left side, but I'm looking at you, which is over here. So everyone's looking at my eyes going sideways, which is probably not the most ideal camera angle but there you go my apologies oh it's all good i mean i'm looking down up when i look at down at the computer this is what it looks like and then i look at to the camera but all the light's blasting in my face so if i do it for too I know, long yeah. i'm like singeing my retinas well so i had a i had a bigger computer but it, it had the wrong software so i it's like well, you know just when you think you've got it right it always it's always something as the saying goes that's just like the work that we do isn't it well, but that's, in a way, the joy of rehearsal. You keep trying yeah. and you keep looking for something quite, not quite the same, and then you get it and then you move on unless, or perhaps it's the direction you thought when you started, perhaps some place completely different. The same thing applies. I mean, it's thinking of rehearsal in terms of improv, which is a much more interesting and freewheeling way of doing it. But it, improv is the way you start a story. I mean, you, you throw a line down on a page or you look at a blank piece of paper and you figure out, okay, what comes next? Uh, you know, and start overeating and drinking too much and, and, you know, walking the dog and listening to a truck grinding whatever the hell it's grinding up outside but it's a journey and until you take the first step or sometimes even when you take the first step you have no idea where you're going you may think you do you may have a note that says okay the beginning of the story is here the end of the story is there but trust me most of the time 
it goes in weird permutations along the way, uh, which leads to an infinite number of eloquent emails to one's editor as the editor saying, no, no, you've got to get back on the path. No, this is better. No, this is approved, but this is better. And then, you know, depending on how, how that all turns out, you either tell the story that you want to tell or you say the, the loose ends for another story down the road. Hmm. But it's always, it's an, always an ongoing process. And that's the cool thing, you know. And um, as I keep, as I say far too often and far too truthfully, I just keep trying till I get it right. Well, I think a lot of people would argue that uh, you've gotten it right many, many times, which is uh, why you were able to resurrect a um, an intellectual property from from the grave and and immortalize it in, in the minds and hearts of generations of people. Ah, thank you. Now, if, if only Kevin were listening, I would think, yeah, maybe he should write a screenplay.